Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Spirit. We thank thee for thyself, thy wonderful grace, to unworthy sinners that takes us when we were dead in trespasses and sin and brings us out of darkness and into light, and that has puts us upon the rock and establishes our goings and puts a new song in our mouth and gives us the grace to sing it. Oh, wilt thou bless the truth to each heart today and use to thy glory the word that goes forth. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. In our studies in the book of Revelation, we've covered seven chapters. And come now to the eighth chapter. I want to read five verses of this great book. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake and the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God tells us of a darkness which may be felt. And here in the book of Revelation, we read of silence which may be heard. To understand it, we must go back over the book of Revelation and bring together the various sounds which have been mentioned. The Apocalypse is a book of great sounds. It tells us in its first page of singing saints and a great voice as of a trumpet. When we see the vision of the throne of God, we hear lightnings and thunderings and voices coming from the throne. Round about it are the living creatures who rest not day nor night, continually crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God of hosts. The voice of the four and twenty elders is raised in praise, while the weeping of John may be heard on occasion. The hosts sing a new song, and every creature in heaven cries, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. With the opening of the sixth seal, once more there is thunder and the voice of the angels. Suddenly, however, with the opening of the last of the seals, all of the sounds of heaven cease. And there is silence for a period which in John's concept of time is half an hour long, but which even in the measure of eternity must be one of the most astonishing incidents known by the heavenly hosts throughout their existence. What is the meaning of it? Perhaps we may come to the answer as we survey the revelation of God from the Old Testament through to this last word. Perhaps the explanation is that the silence in heaven is occasioned by the end of what in the Old Testament has been called the silence of God. Throughout the Old Testament, the men of God cried out against the seeming triumph of evil. The Spirit of God gave the answer through David. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Now the prophet's view was, of course, that God was going to bring righteousness and judgment to the earth. But buried in the midst of unrighteousness, their impatient souls cried, How long, O Lord, how long? They inquired and searched diligently 
searching, we read, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Then we read that the angels desire to look into these things. There is an eager desire in heaven and on earth to know when God shall break his silence and effectively end the ills of earth. John is taken into heaven and allowed to see the throne of God. He hears the thunderings that come forth from the rainbow throne and weeps for the opening of the seals. When his cry is answered and the Lord Jesus Christ comes to open the scroll, all heaven rejoices that judgment has come at last and that the righteousness of God is to be fulfilled. Seal after seal is opened and as the increasing horror of it all comes upon the consciousness of the saints and the angels who behold, their wonder increases. A man might spend a lifetime reading about the eruption of volcanoes and the horror occasioned by such a catastrophe, but if, in reality, he saw cities buried and landscapes destroyed, his previous knowledge would be as nothing compared with the reality. So it is when the judgments are poured out upon the earth. The appearance of Antichrist is followed by wars and rumors of wars, with famine and pestilence in their train, with the chaos of nihilism hard after. Who is sufficient for these things? And now comes the moment for the seventh seal. No created heart but must wonder at the terrors of the judgment of God and must admit that they are just and righteous altogether. No created heart but must admit some sense of relief that these judgments are now coming to an end. The seventh seal is opened and heaven is silent for the space of half an hour. The seventh seal is not a judgment, it is a new beginning. From it come forth seven messengers, each with trumpets to sound further judgments. The word of Christ has been vindicated. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. We can understand this development by a simple illustration. We've all seen fireworks displays in which giant rockets are shot into the air, exploding into a great ball of fire. This, as it falls toward the earth, bursts into a great number of balls of fire of various colors which, as they fall further toward earth, burst again into smaller balls of various colors. So it is with the judgments of God. At first we see nothing but a sealed scroll. As the seals are removed, each one appears to be a judgment, and we would expect that when we come to the last seal, we would be at the last judgment. But instead, the last seal discloses seven angels, each with trumpets. These in turn are various judgments. And as we continue, we shall find that the seventh trumpet in turn reveals not another single judgment, but seven vials of the wrath of God. In both instances, we have a series of seven with the last disclosing seven more. In addition to this structure, we find that there is a parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh in all three series. In all this symbolism here and in the verses which follow, the Spirit of God multiplies the evidences that judgment comes from God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who opens the seal and sends forth the first judgment. It is the Holy Spirit himself who appears in the form of the seven messengers to blow the seven trumpets. Still another messenger now appears, and his work will reveal to us the whole basis of the judgments that are to follow. He is seen standing at the altar. Later he is seen with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. At first glance, these two altars may appear to be the same, 
but a careful study will reveal that they differ from each other. It will be best at this point to go back to the Old Testament for a moment to present a background against which many points in Revelation will become clear. The last verse in Revelation 11 will speak of the temple of God and the Ark of the Testament in heaven. Still later we will find reference to the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. Now these passages can be interpreted only in the light of the Old Testament, and we shall proceed there by way of the epistle to the Hebrews. This book, the name of which gives it its great significance, has important material to present to us with reference to the ancient tabernacle and temple. Describing the consecration of the tabernacle by the rites of sacrifice and the sprinkling of the blood, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews goes on to say, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The American Revised Version strengthens this by speaking of the earthly tabernacle and its appurtenances as being the copies of things in the heaven. When Moses was about to make the tabernacle, he was admonished of God in definite terms. See, saith God, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. It is certain, then, that the tabernacle and the temple, which was constructed later on the same plan, were but the earthly manufacture, scale models, so to speak, of a great reality that is to be found in heaven. A worshiper approaching the tabernacle would have come, first of all, to an altar in the courtyard. On this altar a fire was lighted to consume the body of the Lamb after its blood had been shed. We will follow the priest beyond this altar and find, as we approach the tabernacle itself, that there is a laver filled with water so that the priests may wash their feet before penetrating into the holy place. In Solomon's temple, this labor was called the sea. And as we have seen in our earlier discussion of the crystal sea near the throne of God, it was the symbol of the daily cleansing of the believers. After passing the altar and the labor, the priest entered the main room of the tabernacle or temple called the sanctuary. In it he saw, first of all, the seven-branched candlesticks, symbol of Christ the light. Then he found the table of the showbread, Christ the bread of life, where the saints feed. Then at the far end of the room, a golden altar, which is called the altar of incense. No blood sacrifice was offered on this latter altar, though the incense which was burned before it had to be lighted with fire procured from the altar where the blood of the Lamb had dripped. The fire had originally been lighted from the holy presence of God, and it was the failure on the part of Nadab and Abihu to light their incense with the fire from this altar which caused their death when they brought strange fire into the presence of God. This teaches, of course, that all worship must be on the basis of the redemption accomplished by Christ. Behind the altar of incense was the great veil separating the sanctuary from the holiest of all. This veil in the temple was the one which was torn asunder from top to bottom at the moment that Christ was dying upon the cross. Only the great high priest could go beyond this veil, and on only one day in the year, the Day of Atonement, all this is clearly described in the first half of Hebrews 9. Within the holiest of all, the Ark of the Covenant was located. Over this was the mercy seat, where the high priest placed the blood on the Day of the Atonement. 
It was here that God dwelt in the midst of his people. And it was here that could be seen the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. All of the ministrations of the priest were carried on in these surroundings. Every object, every activity was filled with meaning of Christ and of his redemptive work. Every detail, however, was a copy of a reality that was in heaven in the presence of God. It would appear that this is the architectural plan of the space before the throne of God. It is only by respecting the details of this plan, and especially by recognizing the spiritual meaning attached to each detail by the Holy Spirit himself in the interpretation that is to be found in the book of Hebrews, that we can understand the great realities that are now presented to us in the book of Revelation. So we now return to our chapter 8 and see the messenger standing at the altar. He has in his hand a golden censer, which he uses for two purposes, first for intercession and then for judgment. At the golden altar, that is the altar of incense, the altar of worship, the messenger brings the prayers of the saints. These are, of course, the saints who are on the earth. The prayers that are offered are from the saints on earth, and the intercession of the saints in heaven has already been turned into praise and adoration. It should be noted, of course, that by saints, I mean any man or woman who has built their hope in Jesus Christ. The term saint is a technical one. It does not necessarily mean someone who is saintly, but someone who has been saved through Christ. The meanest, lowliest, most humble believer is in the sight of God and in the definition of the Bible, a saint. One commentator has a most important sidelight to offer. We read, there is a full evidence here that the saints on earth do pray, that their prayers are heard and answered, and that their intercessions are potent in the hands of God in accomplishing the mightiest effects. Now this is a tremendously solemn fact. It is a solemn thing to have such power put into one's possession, and it is still more solemn to have such power committed to us and then, perhaps, either to misuse it or not to use it at all. The messenger now moves through the temple to the altar of sacrifice. The censer which has held incense for the worship of God is now filled with fire from the altar, and this fire is cast upon the earth. How inescapably solemn this is! The judgment fire which is to rage upon the earth comes from the very altar where the Lamb has been slain and his body consumed. In other words, the wrath of God that is to be poured out upon the earth is solemnly based upon the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. When Satan rebelled against God, the Lord did not arbitrarily move against him and take his power away, but in the ordered plan of the ages put the tremendous forces into operation which brought us to the consummation of the cross. There it was that the Lord Jesus Christ spoiled principalities and powers, making a show of them openly and triumphing over them. Just as a sheriff executes a writ in virtue of the judge's decree, so the heavenly messenger now pours forth judgment, which is in full harmony with the absolute righteousness and holiness of God. What an answer this is to the unthinking skeptics who would argue against the goodness of God because of the punishment which must be dealt out against unbelief and unrighteousness. Frequently someone asks me if we would ever willingly place one of our children in the fire. And when we answer that of course we would not, the second question comes, then how do you attribute to God something that you do not possess yourself and from which you would turn away in horror? 
The answer to all such skepticism is found in this passage. We are not creatures of holiness, therefore our judgments are not based on true justice. Frequently we act only in sentiment, but there is a perfect balance of all attributes in the Heavenly Father. If he had acted towards the world only in justice, the world would have been crashed. Had he acted towards this world only in holiness, every sinner must have been separated from God for eternity. Had he acted towards the world only in love, the triumph of sin would have resulted, and fallen creatures would have been permitted to live on eternally in a fallen state. The answer to this dilemma in the very nature of God is found in the Incarnation. The Lord God himself came in the baby Jesus. His choice of a human body was in order that that body should die on the cross. Through that death he destroyed the one that had the power of death, that is, the devil. The full justice of the Father was poured out upon Jesus Christ. It pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, we read in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Likewise, the full holiness of God turned away from Jesus Christ dying on the cross. The cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, was not the result of an illusion. The Holy Father must indeed turn away from the Son, when he was made sin for us. As a result of this perfect satisfaction of justice and holiness in one person of the Savior, the love of God was free to come through to the sinner himself. Thus God resolved the tremendous problem involved in the fact that he both loves and hates, that he has love for the sinner and hate toward his sin. God has no right to forgive the sinner unless there be adequate punishment for his sin. The substitutionary death of Christ provides a basis whereby God can be both just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Those who remain untouched by that grace must suffer the penalty of their enmity towards God. The world that rejected the Son is now to feel the wrath of the Father. One of the greatest of the prophets was one day permitted a vision of the heavenly temple. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, we read in Isaiah. He heard the cry of the seraphim as they led the worship of the universe and announced that the whole earth was filled with his glory. Immediately Isaiah saw himself in contrast to the holiness that was there revealed, and he cried, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We know from the New Testament that this was a vision, a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of the Father. When Isaiah had seen the uncleanness that was in himself, the Lord met it by fire from the altar. One of the seraphim came with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and laid it upon the mouth of the prophet, and announced that his iniquity was taken away and his sin purged. How terrible it is to contemplate the fact that the fire from the altar which cleansed Isaiah's lips is the fire that is now poured out on the earth in judgment. If the world will not have Jesus Christ as its Savior and King, it must have him as judge. That is the truth so tellingly presented in this majestic picture of the courts of heaven. Judgment, the world's greatest judgment, is a well-deserved judgment that is poured out upon the earth in a way that is inextricably bound up with the holiness of God, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the worship of the Creator by the universe. Voices, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake come from the contact 
of heaven's fire and earth's sin. The seven messengers prepare to sound their trumpets. The second of the great series of judgments begins. And the Lord willing, we'll continue with this next week. Our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take the truth to many hearts. Use it to thy glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We ask thee that thou shalt fulfill thy purpose in this hour, and use thy word for the building of thy people. May it be condemnation to those who know thee not, and bring them to the place where they will acknowledge Christ, and may it be at comfort and strength to those who know thee. We give thee the praise through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the book of Revelation, we are studying in the eighth chapter, in the question of the seals, and we come today in verse 6 to the second of the seals. I shall read verses 6 to 13. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea, and which had life, died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters, because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten. And the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise... And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Now, in announcing the judgments which should come upon the earth, our Lord spoke of those which we have studied under the breaking of the seven seals. He then proclaimed that all these are the beginning of sorrows. The trumpet judgments then follow. The first four of these seem to be somewhat in the nature of an anticlimax. They differ from the earlier judgments. They are not as universal in their extent. They cannot be compared with the horrors that shall follow in the great woes and in the final outpouring of the bowls of God's wrath. This feeling of anticlimax about the nature of the first four trumpet judgments bothered me for some time. I laid aside my study of the book for several weeks. I returned to this portion with a mind freshened in the presence of God. I read this chapter as though it were new material, seeking to put away thoughts of all that goes before and of all that follows after. It was then that I found my simile. An electric wire that is made for carrying the small voltage of house needs will stand currents which will burn out filaments and blow out fuses. A transformer will enable these wires to send power that transcends ordinary needs if the occasion arise. So it is with human suffering. Man may think that he can stand only so much. But when a great emergency comes, he finds that he can live on and on and on under conditions which would ordinarily seem intolerable. In the midst of great pain, there is a moment when the overworked nerves are incapable of transmitting further misery. One is conscious that the pain is continuing unabated, but it seems as if there is some surcease. And then, as though the nerves had become used to the increased intensity of suffering, they are enabled to carry an anguish that had not yet been deemed consistent with the retention of life. At the close of the sixth chapter, suffering humanity had already reached the point where all men, from kings to slaves, were crowding into the dens of the rocks 
under the false impression that the pains and sorrows of the first series of judgments had exhausted the possibilities of the wrath of God. They come out of the rocks to carry on a life that has long since ceased to be worth living. Judgments that are worse than any they have known fall upon them, and they make shift to endure a little more. Oh, how black and unyielding is the heart of man! Again and again we are forced to think of the old cry, Turn ye, turn ye, for why will ye die? Now, when I first prepared these studies, I did so before the coming of the atomic age. But since the time of the preparation, there has come the atom bomb, then the hydrogen bomb, and now the lithium bomb and the cobalt bomb, and these great forces of destruction are upon us. I'm wondering if the book of Revelation does not show us indeed what man himself shall bring upon the earth, the horrors that we've seen when men go into the caves and cry unto the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, could well be the consequence of man's own horrid setting forth of judgments that shall fall upon this earth. And then men creep out of the dens and the rocks and begin to carry on some life. These first judgments are partial, and they deal only with matters which touch the bodies of men. There is a mixture of mercy to be seen in them all. Why should the Lord spare the two-thirds? Why should only one-third part of humanity suffer? Is it not a call to the others to turn to God and live? We have every right to believe that some indeed are called out from among those who escape these torments, but the multitude remain in unbelief and call from God further woes and final wrath. In order to avoid confusion, it should be remembered that the great day of God's wrath is yet future not only from our point of view, but from the point of view of those who fall under the trumpet judgments. The fact that the people of earth cried unto the mountains and the rocks, saying that the great day of God's wrath had come, did not make their statement true any more than the cry of someone today in the midst of natural calamity, the end of the world is here, would really end the world. All these difficulties will be done away with if it's recognized that, terrible as the seal and trumpet judgments are, they are not the judgments of the great tribulation which must come after the abomination of desolation in accordance with the definite prophecy of the Lord himself in Matthew 24. The seals and the trumpets are still in the phase of the beginning of sorrows. The first messenger sounds his trumpet, and hail and fire mingled with blood are cast upon the earth, causing the burning of the third part of the earth, of the third part of the trees of the earth, and all of the green grass of the earth. Now if this is literal, it needs no explanation whatsoever. It would be the announcement of a catastrophe resulting from causes that are not ordinarily to be found in nature, or that might well be found in man's new discoveries, that rise out of nuclear fission. We are already familiar with the fact that the earth here in this paragraph does not necessarily mean the whole globe, but may be limited to the sphere of Israel, or at the most, to the sphere of the old Roman Empire. Cease has shown that it is possible to interpret these phenomena with exact literalness, and he lived long before our modern age but he gives examples of such natural phenomena during the 19th century and calls our attention, as all commentators do, to the fact that in Egypt the Lord sent thunder and hail and the fire ran along upon the ground and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. And so there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous. And the, the hail smote every herb of the field. And uh, Cease rightly complains against those who have permitted free course to the imagination in an attempt to explain these things symbolically. We would go a step further to show the utter absurdity of some of the most common of the interpretations. If the trees are, as someone has said, the great men of earth, and if the grass is the entire population of the land, we must come to the impossible conclusion 
that all the common people and one-third of the leaders are swept away in this judgment, and that the only living beings remaining are two-thirds of the aristocracy. Now, this is obviously untrue. The remaining prophecies deal with masses of people, and they, therefore, were not destroyed here. If we apply our old yardstick to these symbols and seek their meaning in the concordance, we're faced with interesting conclusions. Hail is always used of judgment. The plague of hail in Egypt is but one example. Against Ephraim, God announced the coming of a mighty and strong one as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, we read in Isaiah 28. To Job, the Lord revealed that he had reserved treasures of hail against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war. And this time of trouble, described by Jeremiah in his 30th chapter and by Daniel in his 12th chapter, can be none other than the judgment scenes of the future, which shall come primarily upon Israel, and then in a wider way upon the nations which have persecuted Israel. Fire is another symbol of judgment. The concordance will give many illustrations of the wrath of God under the symbol of fire. It comes from the Lord, it devours, it consumes, it is divine judgment. Blood which is mingled with the hail and the fire can speak but of more judgment. Here is violence and death pictured for us. Now figurative language in the Bible is used only when the symbols can be easily interpreted by the context, or when there is something that is beyond human speech and the nearest approximation to the divine meaning can best be conveyed by a symbol. We are forced to conclude in the present instance that the hail, the fire, and the blood are either literal hail, fire, and blood, or that they represent judgment so terrible that there is no vocabulary in our language that can express their awfulness, and God has conveyed the general thought by symbols which point back to judgments in the past and prophecies of judgment in the future. In this connection, Cease has written, I must take these descriptions in the only really ascertainable sense of them and insist that a mighty storm of hail and fire mingled with blood, that earth, trees, and all green grass means earth, trees, and all green grass, and that the burning and scorching and destruction means burning, scorching, and destruction. And after wading through piles of volumes intended to prove and demonstrate the contrary, I come back to this as fully persuaded as I am convinced that the Bible is of God, that there can be no interpretation of the apocalypse as an intelligible revelation on any other principle. There are indeed symbols and figures in it, as in all other portions of the scriptures. But when they occur here, as in every other place, the distinct intimations to that effect are given, and in all other instances we are to interpret precisely the same as in any other piece of serious writing intended for the instruction and the enlightenment of men. The second messenger sounds his trumpet, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became bloody, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea, which had life, died, and the third part of the ships was destroyed. Now the first thing to strike our attention is the little clause, as it were. Here is a definite indication of symbolism. The mountain, it is said, is not a literal mountain, but as it were a mountain. There are two possibilities then, at least. It is all symbolism, or the mountain alone is symbolic. We have previously noted that the earth is frequently a symbol of Palestine, and that the sea, by contrast, represents the Gentile nations. This judgment, then, if taken symbolically, is a judgment that falls more especially upon the Gentile nations. The concordance will give us one clue. Jeremiah speaks of a burnt mountain. Behold, we read in Jeremiah 51, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroyest all the earth and I will stretch out mine hand upon thee, and roll thee down from the rocks, and will make thee a burnt mountain. Our Lord also spoke of a mountain that should be removed and cast into the sea, when the disciples would have unwavering faith. We shall have more to say of Babylon when we come to the later chapters where it's more directly in view.
Suffice it to say that there is in view here a great power filled with eruptive forces which shall be cast into the midst of the nations. Many commentators have pointed out the analogy with the French Revolution. An even greater analogy has come into being in our times in Russia and the Satanism of Communism. The Russian experiment was bound to succeed and every year brings greater proof to the world that Satan's mightiest efforts have succeeded beyond all thought of those who appraised communism in its early decades. Some power nearer the western nations, nearer Palestine, shall know such an upheaval and will have such a mighty social and economic success that the surrounding nations will be thrown into turmoil as Satan demonstrates his ability to do great things for the suppressed classes and the toiling masses. And the result is catastrophe for the surrounding nations, death and destruction of trade and commerce. How pregnant these words become in our day. The other possible interpretation of this trumpet judgment is again that which Cease gives. He sees symbolism in the phrase, as it were, but believes that only the mountain is not literal. It is, he thinks, something that looks like a mountain, and he judges it to be a literal meteoric mass from heaven that falls into the sea, most likely the Mediterranean. He believes that the catastrophe would cause the death of the living creatures in the sea and would destroy the third part of the commerce that moves upon it. I personally, choosing between these two possible meanings of the phrase, as it were, would be inclined to accept the first, as it seems much more in keeping with the spirit of the Bible as I read it. There are, however, prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the destruction of the fish of the sea and the commerce of the earth, in Hosea 4, in Zephaniah 1, in Isaiah 2. And again I say that since the coming of the age of nuclear fission, uh, all of these things become much more literally possible than we had ever thought before. We know that a whole island was lifted up bodily by the explosion of a hydrogen bomb and that it was cast into the sea and that fish were filled with radioactive elements and were capable of destroying sickness in hundreds of miles away. And we know how the burns came upon men uh, way outside the limits of the destructive explosion. And so we say that in the light of the fact that all of these judgments may be the result of man's own sinfulness and willfulness, it is very possible that these things shall have a literal fulfillment in the light of history and the word of God. Now with the sounding of the third trumpet, John saw a star named the Wormwood burning like a torch fall from heaven. Falling upon the third part of the rivers and the springs of the earth, it turns them to wormwood and many people die from the bitter poison of the waters. Here again we must present two interpretations, literal and symbolical. If the vision is a symbol, we must of course brush aside all of the historic vaporings of men who have tried to see some incident of the past in this scene. Whatever it means, it is a picture of something that lies in the future. The only possible symbolism would be found through the identification of the rivers and the springs as the sources of spiritual refreshment in life. Our Lord spoke to the women at the well, saying, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. In the Psalms we are told that those who go from strength to strength have been turning the valley of trouble into a well and dwelling in a place of springs. The same symbol is found in the last chapter of the Bible as the river proceeding from the throne of God. After leaving Egypt, the children of Israel came to the place in the desert where they could not drink of the waters of Marah for they were bitter. And the Lord showed Moses a tree, which when he had cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Now if the tree represents the cross of Jesus Christ, then we know that the waters without the tree would be religion without redemption. If in addition there is the positive introduction of poison, the situation is still worse. A star called the Wormwood falls from heaven. In the first chapter of the Apocalypse, 
Seven stars are seen and identified as the messengers to the seven churches of Asia. Now here is a star that is fallen. It is a satanic messenger who poisons the streams of spiritual life with false doctrines and that is compared to wormwood. The Greek word for this is that from which we get our word absinthe. This we know is a drink so intoxicating that the French government, for example, had to take the sternest measures to keep it away from the Apache, who, maddened by its effect, went forth to commit the most desperate crimes. All this is in line with those prophecies which speak of the deceptions of the last days. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Those who received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved, are given over by God to a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now, if this, on the other hand, be taken as a description of a literal phenomenon, the passage would need reading, but not explanation. A meteor of some kind, falling from the literal heavens, might well embitter the third part of the waters of the earth. Or some explosion of a device invented by man, some vast nuclear fission that would set forth a chain reaction beyond the control of the physicists who invent it, could indeed explode entailing fearful distress on account of the absence of wholesome drink and great mortality among men. Then the fourth trumpet judgment reaches into the heavens. Some blight touches the sun, the moon, and the stars, darkening them by one-third, and lessening in consequence the proportional amount of light that reaches earth. As we have seen in our discussion of the judgment under the sixth seal, the sun, the moon, and the stars are symbols of human government. Even though the rule over the earth may be in the hands of those who are described as principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, all of the powers upon the earth are ordained of God. The sixth seal showed us the cataclysm of anarchy and the breakup of all authority. There has been naturally the attempt to restore order out of chaos. We know from many other passages in the Bible that the power of the Roman dictator will be formed during this period and that Satan will come to dwell within him as the Antichrist. So it should be noticed that our Lord, in Luke's record of the last great prophetic utterance, spoke along lines which closely paralleled the judgments announced under the four trumpets. For in Luke 21 we read, And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now, this passage should be read in the light of a prophecy in the epistle of the Hebrews. Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Now the powers of heaven that are to be shaken are very probably the spiritual rulers of this world's darkness, and the result of that shaking will be increasingly felt upon the earth, as all attempts at human government are proved to be abortive and as it is increasingly demonstrated that only the coming of the Lord can bring peace and order upon the earth. And thus Isaiah prophesies, Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days, in the day that the Lord bindeth up the breach of his people, and healeth the stroke of their wound. And all this will lead on to that perfect time when there will be no further need of human leadership, since the Lamb will be all the light, and there will be no need of lesser lights. And we cannot pass this way without noticing uh, a tremendous coincidence, if you wish to speak of a coincidence in the Scripture, 
over this phrase, the powers of heaven that shall be shaken. For the word heaven in Greek is the same word from which we get our word uranium. And the word powers that is used here is dynamis, from which we get dynamite, explosive power. And the word that is used for shaken in the Greek is that which would be set off balance. And very literally, this in Greek, if we forced a literal translation, an etymological translation upon it, would make it read, instead of the powers of heaven shall be shaken, that the explosive force of uranium shall be set off balance. Now I say I am well uh, willing to accept this as coincidence, but it must be recorded, for a coincidence that is so striking and so startling must be considered in the evidence when we discuss the prophecies of the Word of God. Oh, how wonderful for us who are believers to know that God is on the throne, that no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper, and that God will always take care of his own, and that he knows how to deliver the godly out of testing. And our God and Father, we pray thee that thou shalt give us to be simply quiet and restful in our faith, as we wait for the coming of the Son of God and his divine intervention to right all the wrongs that are upon this earth. We pray thee for all of thy children who are in any trouble. Wilt thou bless them abundantly and keep them in thyself, give sustaining mercies, that in all these things they may be more than conquerors. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.